I'll be reading from the New King James Version, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 17 through 19. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. It's always good to assemble with the saints and offer our worship to God. And uh, I'm glad that you're here today. And if you are visiting with us today, thank you for coming. And we hope if we haven't had the opportunity just yet uh, to meet you personally and, and to thank you personally for being here, I hope we'll have that opportunity when our assembly is dismissed in just a bit. I think it'd be good uh, to preface uh, the remarks I want to make this morning by expressing not just belief in, but profound gratitude for the grace of God, the mercy of God, the love of God, and the forgiveness of God. Those are all wonderful, wonderful blessings that if you are in the body of Christ, then you experience grace and mercy and love and forgiveness as blessings that not everyone in the world does possess and enjoy. And I find a lot of peace in the reality of those characteristics of God. And I hope and pray that you do as well. Now that said, one of the things that is unfortunate and tragic in our world today is that there's a contemporary view of these blessings that seems to want to ignore personal responsibility and that seems to want to take advantage of God's mercy and grace and forgiveness and love without much commitment on the part of the recipient of those blessings. Now today I'm not talking about, I'm not addressing the occasional stumbling of the conscientious Christian. Regardless of how much, how strongly we want to live the Christian life, we are all going to stumble from time to time. That's not what's on my mind this morning. Instead, I want to concern ourselves and address uh, our thoughts this morning toward those who seem to want to live their lives in ways that please them and yet expect God to simply overlook their choosing not to live in ways that please Him. And I hope we see the difference. It's one thing to live life trying as best we can with each day to live the way God wants us to live, and occasionally falling short of the standard. That's one thing. It's quite another 
to simply decide, you know what, I want to live my life my way. And I just simply expect God's mercy and grace and love to simply overlook that. And for God to just turn a blind eye to my decision to not live the way He wants me to live. And sometimes we may add to this problem by overlooking the rebellion in the lives of others by simply saying, well, I know that person doesn't really, they don't seem to really want to do what God wants them to do, but I just believe God's love is going to overlook that. I just think the mercy of God is going to simply not take that into account. And so the sinful person continues to live in irresponsibility, makes no attempt at correction, and expects all the while for God to simply look the other way. Is that a biblical concept? That's the question in front of us today. And as we seek to answer it, or allow the Word of God to answer it, I want for us to first of all lay a foundation. It's just so that we understand some basic principles about what God expects of us as His children. And so we'll start with the words of Jesus in John 14, verse 15. A very simple, straightforward, unambiguous statement. Jesus said, John 14, verse 15, If you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, do what I say. One chapter later, John 15, verse 14. Just reverse the numbers. And, and it's, it's a very easy thing to remember. 14, 15, and 15, 14. Jesus said in 15, 14 of John, You are my friends if you do what I command you. So in those two passages, Jesus defines, if you will, or illustrates love for Him and friendship with Him, or fellowship with Him, relationship with Him, in terms of our attitudes toward what He has said. So if I truly love Jesus, and I want to be friends with Jesus, and possess that kind of close relationship, I can't divorce those things from my attitude toward what He has said for me to do. Does that make sense? Open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And follow along as we begin in verse 3. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 3. Paul said, For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your disobedience is complete. Now I want us to focus specifically on the end of verse number 5. 
After Paul said, look, we are at war. We're in a battle, but we're not waging war according to the flesh. In other words, the battle that we're involved in as Christians is not a, a physical you know, battle, one that's, that's fought with material weapons, carnal weapons. But he said, we are at war. We are at battle. But the battle that we're involved in involves ideas. It involves thoughts. And, and we battle against those things, those lofty thoughts and opinions that have been raised against the knowledge of God. And in the process, it's our desire, end of verse 5, to bring every thought into captivity unto the obedience of Christ. That ought to be our goal. To bring every thought, my thoughts, to take every thought captive to obey Christ. Is that how you view your life? As it pertains to your relationship to obeying the Lord. That it's your desire to bring even your every thought captive for that purpose, to obey Jesus. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians and said to them, You received from us how you ought to live. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 1. John would write, This is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. 1 John 5 verse 3. So both Jesus and John, the inspired apostle, defined terms, defined in terms of love what it means or excuse me, in terms of obedience, what it means to love God. In other words, love is defined by how we view obedience to Christ, how He wants us to live. All right? So, and those texts are clear. They're not ambiguous. So how then, in view of that, can anyone find comfort with the belief that God is simply going to overlook willful disobedience. I'm talking again about sins of presumption where we simply say, you know what, I know God said that, but I know God wants me to do this, but I'm not going to do that and I'm just going to expect God's mercy and God's love to overlook that. How, how can a person find comfort in that idea in light of those passages? So what's the key concept then? We've laid the foundation. Consider this key concept in this whole discussion. And it comes from the 24th chapter of Luke. Luke chapter 24. And I want you to, to pay close attention to verses 46 and 47. Luke 24, beginning in 46. And he said to them, this is Jesus speaking, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Now this whole discussion today may very well hinge on the word in verse 47, repentance. Jesus said, Here's, this is God's will that the Christ should suffer, die, be raised the third day, and that 
beginning at Jerusalem, repentance and remission of sins be preached in His name. Repentance may be the key in this whole discussion because the word repentance implies that God is not simply going to overlook the impenitent. Repentance, as, as, a, as a word, the basic meaning of the word is to change. It has to do with turning. Someone has described repentance, and I think very well, uh, just, just by way of illustration, that if a person is walking in a particular direction, and by walking, we're thinking about living one's life. The Bible uses that terminology that way, right? You walk, you live your life. If a person is walking in a particular direction and they repent, what repentance requires is that they not keep walking the same direction, but that they turn and they walk in the other direction. Now what that involves is, first of all, a change in the way we think. Because our actions stem from our thoughts. In the physical, it, just using the analogy or the comparison as such, if I'm walking this direction and I want to go that way, what am I going to have to first do? I engage my mind for my mind to communicate with my body to make the physical turn and go, right? It involves, first of all, a change of mind that then results in a change of action. So when we come to God, when we come to Jesus Christ, we have to change the way we think about sin. We have to change the way we think about disobedience. That if we have possessed the attitude that, well, God's just going to overlook that, I don't really have to be very concerned about how I live life. I'll just live my life the way I want to, and God will just overlook it. Well, the only problem with that is that God never said that is that the Bible doesn't teach it. So I've got to change my attitude about that, change my mind and repent, if you will, of that type of thinking. But if I've truly changed my mind about it, then that's automatically going to result in a change in what I do, isn't it? Because if I really don't change how I live, then I really haven't changed how I think. So I think it all hinges on that word. It means to change so that we've got to think properly about sin. What does the Bible tell us about sin and how to think about it? Well, a lot of things, but I want to call attention to a couple. Proverbs 4, verses 14 and 15, offers a basic general um, idea of how we should view sin. Proverbs 4, 14 and 15 the wise writer there said, with regard to wickedness, sin, and, and, and the pathway of sin, avoid it, do not travel on it, turn from it, and pass on. It would be kind of hard to misunderstand that, wouldn't it? In talking about the pathway of sin, the pathway of wickedness, he says, avoid it. Don't, don't walk on it. Turn away from it. Go, go a different way. Now that sounds a lot different than a person who says, well, I know God says I shouldn't do that, but I'm going to do it anyway, and I'll just expect God to overlook it. No, God says you avoid that. You need to be concerned about the way you live and try to avoid those things that are evil. Paul said in Romans 12 verse 9, 
abhor that which is evil. That's, that's a strong word. It means to hate, to despise. The prophet Amos in Amos 5.13 said it just about the same way. Hate the evil and love the good, Amos said. Paul said, abhor that which is evil, cling to that which is good. The gospel is a message of hope and deliverance and love and mercy and grace, but it's also a message of change. It's a message that requires change. Nowhere do the Scriptures teach that one may come to God for forgiveness and still continue to live in sin and be unconcerned about the choices you make from day to day. That's not anywhere in the Word of God. As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9-11, through we see an example of Paul talking about the, the Corinthian Christians and how they were different after becoming Christians than they were before they were Christians. Do you remember that passage, 1 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 9? Where Paul writes, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He's reminding them of that truth that he taught them. The unrighteous, those that are unconcerned about wickedness, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he gives some examples of what he's talking about. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So Paul said, do you, do you realize that, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom? And here's the, here are the kinds of things that I'm talking about when I talk about unrighteousness. And he lists those things. And then he says, notice verse 11, And such, among these things that I just listed, and such were some of you. But notice the past tense. Such were some of you. Not are. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Paul is making the point that when they were washed, their being washed did not sanctify their adultery. It didn't sanctify their stealing. It didn't sanctify their extortion or swindling or homosexuality or any of that. Being washed didn't just automatically make all of those things okay. They were washed and justified and sanctified because part of that process included them making behavioral changes. They didn't continue to be adulterers. They didn't continue to be extortioners. Paul said you were washed and you put all of that aside. In other words, you changed. You change the way you think about sin. And you change the way you act. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul asked, Romans 6 verse 1, his answer to that is, may it never be. Don't even think like that. 
we don't see, see the argument was, or the, the argument that Paul was trying to head off was in Romans chapter 5, he kept making the case that it was our sin that brought about all the expressions of God's grace that we enjoy. Which makes sense. If we hadn't sinned, we wouldn't be in need of grace. So because we sinned, it brought about God's grace. But Paul wanted them to not think that if our sin brought about grace, then the more I sin, the more grace I ought to get. So that's why I ask the question, shall we then continue in sin so that grace may be multiplied, so that grace may abound? He says, no, 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 no. How shall we who have died to sin continue any longer therein? That was his question of Romans 6 verse 2. So he's saying to us, you don't or should not continue to live in sin because when you accepted the grace of God, Part of that acceptance of God's grace also involved the acceptance of a change in your relationship to sin. And that's what the whole chapter of Romans 6 is about. Where he'll make the point that we are to be dead to sin and alive unto God, Romans 6.11. And that, and that you know, sin does not and should not have control of us because we are now living under God's grace, Romans 6.14, which means our attitude towards sin has changed. So this whole idea of thinking that God's love is simply going to turn a blind eye to my rebellious living is something that individuals have made up in their own mind. They didn't get it from the Word of God. So what does the love of God mean as it pertains to sin? How does the love of God apply then to our life? Five things very quickly. Number one, God's love made provision for cleansing through the blood of Jesus Christ. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins, 1 John 4, verse 10. God's love made provision through the blood of Christ for our sins to be washed away. Number two, God's love published this good news to sinners in the gospel, Romans 1. Number three, God's love forgives people when we accept the terms of the gospel and obey it. Hebrews 5 verse 9. Number four, God's love has revealed the kind of life that God wants us to live in response to His grace. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 1. And then number five, God's love through the blood of Jesus provides continual cleansing for the Christian who walks in the light. 1 John 1 verse 7. That's how the love of God applies to our sin and to the lives that we live. The bottom line is that ultimately, with all of this question, God's love is not in question. What may very well be in question, though, is our love for Him. Will the love of God simply overlook willful disobedience and rebellion against His will? It will not. God's love has offered us the way to have those sins removed, but it must be up to us, it is up to us, to be willing to show our love for God by accepting His plan for our redemption. And when we do that, we'll enjoy the blessings, but it involves a change in the way we think about sin. So what about you? Are you continuing to live in rebellion against God's will and are just expecting God to turn a blind eye? 
If that's the way you've been living, I hope you'll rethink that. God doesn't require us to be sinless and perfect. He requires us to be faithful, and that's something all of us can do. Are you? If you realize that changes need to be made in your life, be, be grateful, be thankful, praise God and worship God for His mercy and His grace and His love as expressed through Jesus Christ, which makes it possible to have your sins removed. But don't slap God in the face by trying to take advantage of that blessing on your own terms instead of on His terms. If you're not a child of God today and you're ready to become one, let us know what your need is. We might help you to understand the truth and help you to complete your obedience to the gospel. May we help you today. If we may, we invite you to come as we stand and sing together.